0: Join us September 30th through October 2nd for the 26th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium. The topic of this year's symposium couldn't be more timely as we look at healing from historical trauma. This is the first year we are hosting the event virtually, and the best part is the cost to attend is reduced and full conference registration is only $180. Also, there are discounts available to students and groups. Learn more about the symposium and register today at
1: zerosymposium.org.
0: You know, the the people who built Greenwood did so in an era where, you know, their, their options were and their opportunities were very limited. And yet they were able to take, you know, in many cases it was literally nothing, you know, it was bare ground and turned it into a place they were really proud of.
2: You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the Nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Mac Gleason. On today's episode, our special guest is Hannibal B. Johnson. As many of you already know, Hannibal wrote Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. He's an attorney, author, and independent consultant specializing in diversity and inclusion and cultural competence issues, along with nonprofit governance. He chairs the Education Committee for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. And we're thrilled that Hannibal will be a keynote speaker at the virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up September 30th through October 2nd. Our theme is Healing from Historical Trauma. Other keynote speakers include Tim Wise, Dr. Daryl Tonema, and Dr. Joy DeGruy. Register today at ZeroSymposium.org. Hannibal's keynote is titled The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and Historical Racial Trauma. As his keynote description says, Hannibal will explore the history of racial historical trauma in the U.S. and Oklahoma and discuss how we must think critically about our strategies for addressing the present legacy of historical racial trauma in America to pursue justice and healing. And our special guest for this episode is acclaimed author and Tulsa World newspaper reporter Randy Crable. As a reporter and writer for nearly 40 years, Randy has chronicled life past and present in his native state of Oklahoma. He currently covers state politics for the Tulsa World newspaper. Hannibal and I asked Randy to be on the show today to talk about his book, Tulsa 1921, Reporting a Massacre. And that book won the 2020 Oklahoma Book Award in the nonfiction category. Here's a short summary. In Tulsa 1921, Randy analyzes local newspaper accounts in an unprecedented effort to gain insight into the minds of contemporary Tulsans. In the process, he considers how the Tulsa World, the Tulsa Tribune, and other publications contributed to the circumstances that led to the disaster and helped solidify enduring white justifications for it. Some historians have dismissed local newspapers as too biased to be a value for an honest account, but by contextualizing their reports, Randy renders tulsa's papers and invaluable resources highlighting the influence of news media on our actions in the present and our memories of the past let's get this conversation started the mental health download starts now
1: welcome randy crable to the mental health download it's great to have you here Thank you, sir. So I've got some questions that relate to your book, your recent book, that really deals primarily with, with reportage of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. I first want to know how how you initially got interested in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District as a reporting
0: topic. Well, you know, I'd, I'd come to Tulsa in 1979, and I'd sort of been interested in Tulsa history in general. But the big... The big change uh, for me was 1999, towards the end of the year, I was assigned to cover what was in the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. I think the name's been officially changed now, but at that time, that's what the name was. And and as you know, that was a legislative uh, commission that was set up to investigate. Uh, what happened in Tulsa in 1921 and, and afterwards. And uh, when I was assigned to cover that, part of the job was to put together an archives for the Tulsa world because we didn't really have much other than our microfilm. Our clip files really didn't go back uh, before World War II so we didn't have any contemporary clips on the subject. And, uh, we had a few that had been written, you know, in the say from the 70s forward, uh, but those were not very reliable. And so anyway, I was covering the commission, and at the same time, I was supposed to be looking to find out. Well, okay, what exactly was in the world in the Tribune at that time? And so, so I started uh, looking at that, and and also trying to find out about find out as much as I could about. You know, about Greenwood. So, you know, as
1: a seasoned reporter, what is it that you find most newsworthy about Tulsa's historic Greenwood district?
0: Well, I, you know, I think the thing that, you know, strikes me about that community, especially for probably its first 60 years or so, was just, you know, how how hard people worked to make it a uh, a place they were proud of And and i would say that people are still doing that except a lot of the historic what was greenwood in 1921 and what is greenwood now are kind of two different things but, you know, the the people who built Greenwood did so in an era where, you know, their, their options were and their opportunities were very limited. And yet they were able to take, you know, in many cases, it was literally nothing. You know, it was bare ground and turned it into a place they were really proud of. Absolutely.
1: You know, again, your focus is on the role of the media. So I want to explore with you your thoughts on the media, both locally and nationally in the run up to the massacre how would you characterize the role of the media just in advance of 1921
0: what i found you know most instructive from reading all the old newspapers and magazines and so forth was you know what they told me about about those times so locally the tribune was more of an activist newspaper and as part of that activism they had, they were advocating for quote the cleanup of Greenwood. They they tended to portray it as a basically as a crime infested slum. The, the world uh, was, I guess, you would say, more reactive. It, it didn't really it, it really didn't take a, a, a strong position on on Greenwood itself. Editorially, it had some fairly strong feelings about segregation, but I would say, you know, both newspapers, there aren't many examples of them going out of their way to bring the races together, or I guess you would say to, to lift up not only African-Americans, but all people of, of color. You know, there was a third newspaper in town which was the 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 star which was african american i don't it, the best i can tell it was not really a daily but it was a very active newspaper and and of course they had a very he had, it was published by aj Smith. and he had a very different perspective on things and he was very much agitating for change so i think you know on the one hand you had the sort of the predominant white oriented newspapers that were helping to perpetuate existing norms, if you will. And then you had this smaller but more aggressive African-American oriented newspaper that was pushing for change. And so even though none of them spoke up directly for, you know, directly for confrontation on anything, they, they were, you know, part of the part of the background going on that, uh, you know, led to conflict between people who wanted the things to stay the same and people who wanted them to change. Nationally, you had a lot of black-owned newspapers that wanted change, and you had a lot of white-owned newspapers that, while they might want change, they didn't really want change as it related to race. So all of that, I think, you know, played into, you know, conflict not only here, but many other places, too. You had You had a new generation of black Americans who were not content with the status quo and were insisting on on their rights.
1: You know, one of the interesting things that you sort of touched on, but I want to get a more direct focus on it. In Tulsa, would you say that the white media, say in 1921 and the run up to 1921, would you characterize the white media as independent, or would you say, on the other hand, that the media were entrenched with other powerful, privileged institutions and individuals?
0: Yeah, I would say they were somewhat in, entrenched. Now, Keep in mind, in Tulsa in 1921, there there weren't very many long-standing institutions. There were very few people who'd be, who lived in Tulsa more than ten or fifteen years, and a lot of them had only lived there a few years. But yes, the I mean, the world was sort of the Chamber of Commerce newspaper, if you will. Not that they you know had a direct financial connection to the Chamber of Commerce, but they tended to to side with sort of more of the, the, the business community, I guess you would say. And the Tribune was more attuned uh, to a group that included Charles Page and Kate Brady and some others who, who were kind of a power unto themselves. I mean, they were, all, they were all or mostly all Democrats, but it was, I think, more about power and money than it was uh, party Let's think about
1: a phrase that we hear bandied about, uh, particularly because of one news outlet today, the phrase fair and balanced. So if we think about if we think about a Likert scale, a, a one to five Likert scale with five being the most fair and balanced, if you take a snapshot of Tulsa Media in 1921, where do we land on that Likert scale of from one to five, five being the most fair and balanced?
0: Probably about a two. I mean, and it, and of course, it depends on what you mean by. It really varied by by subject, I guess you would say, or issue. And newspapers tended to be much more partisan than than they are now. And and also, again, they tended to reflect the views of the of the readers, who, in the case of the World and Tribune, were mostly white. And if you want to include the Star in that. You know, their readers were, were mostly black, so, you know, they were, they were telling their stories from those perspectives, and in the case of The World and the Tribune, they were telling their stories from the perspective of different kinds of white audiences, so, so I don't know that they were, they were particularly fair and balanced in the way that we came to think of that later on.
1: If you, if you think about all the potential stories that we have to tell f- from Tulsa's historic Greenwood district and its trajectory over the years. What strikes you as the most undertold of those stories?
0: Uh, you know, when I started out, I didn't really understand the obstacles and the difficulties that these, that these folks had to, had to overcome and, and especially how they were able to rebuild after the massacre. I mean, that's quite remarkable, especially when you, Consider, you know, I, you probably know more about this, a lot more about this than I do, but I would think that the, their access to capital was extremely limited compared to, you know, their white neighbors. Absolutely. So I don't know. I mean, I hope, does that answer your question, Hannibal? I'm not trying to get around it. That's just the thing that always strikes me is how hard these people work and, and how enterprising they were.
1: It does. And it leads me to a a related question. We all know the old media trope, if it bleeds, it leads. Is that part of the reason that there's such an intense focus on the massacre as opposed to the individuals, the, the human spirit, the community building, the Black Wall Street story? What's the relationship between that trope and the, the way that we understand this history.
0: Well, you know, I think you know, death, fire, and destruction always gets people's attention. So, yes, I think there is something, something to that. It, it, it's quote exciting, you know. I and I and I understand that. I mean, you know, a, a lot of people did die. A, a bit, you know, what happened was, you know, if not, it was pretty close to unprecedented. If it wasn't unprecedented itself, so. I understand all of that. But as you point out, there's there's a lot more to the story, both before and after and even continuing on until today. I want to get
1: back to the black media in particular. So we had the the Tulsa Star. We had another smaller, less well-known black newspaper called the Oklahoma Sun as well. Is, Is there a role in your mind for black media that's different? from the role of majority media, either back then or, or, or even currently. So just your just your thoughts on whether the black media or so-called minority media have a different charge or a different role to play
0: in journalism. Most of us grew up with mass media, where you had a couple of newspapers and three television stations, and they reached huge audiences, and today we live in a world with, you know, micro-media. In other words, uh, your audiences have been really broken up into, into different pieces, and so there are all sorts of, of avenues, and, you know, anything, I would say, that gets a different perspective out into the, you know, marketplace of ideas, so to speak, is, is, is useful anytime someone can report on something that does that that brings a different perspective is a good thing i mean i don't i'm not an expert in the business side of it i'd say the minority media has the same problem that a lot of other people in media do how do you how do you pay for it right and 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 so that part i don't know but i think like i said i i mean i think one thing That, you know, reading all those old newspapers really brought home to me, it was how, you know, lacking in perspective journalism 100 years ago was. I'm talking about what today we call the mainstream media. It's not that a lot of the reporters at at the World and the Tribune necessarily wished black people ill. They just didn't know anything about it. They they didn't, they had no perspective. They thought they did, but they didn't really. And so we got a lot of stuff that's just kind of casual, I don't know, I would call it casually racist. It's not necessarily intended to be, you know, something malicious, but it is. So getting back to your original question, I think any new perspective, any different perspective to a, an issue or something like that is useful. I, I hope that again. I hope that answered your question and I didn't talk too much in circles.
1: No, it it, it actually does, and it's a perfect segue to my next question. So okay, okay. I'm going to ask you to compare and contrast what what's different and what is the same about the media of the early 20th century and the media of the early 21st century.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there is, you know, it, it's like a lot of things that deal with with race. It's it's more diverse, but it's not as diverse as it could be or should be. And I think, you know, one thing that's going on in in sort of the legacy media, like the Tulsa World and some others, is, you know, with with the the way the current financial situation, they're not hiring anybody. And so that makes it a lot harder for, you know, minorities who are kind of just entering the pool to to get on at a at a at a uh, at a large organization or actually I'd say it makes it harder to get on at sort of a medium to small size operation because they they those are the ones with the least resources and and you know are kind of in a even more of a pickle than say, someplace like the New York Times and the Washington Post. However, the thing I wonder about is if it also doesn't create more opportunities, you just have to go out and do it on your own, which, you know, as I, again, as I said, that's tough. But we, we do see some people taking advantage of the Internet and, and blogging and stuff like that to sort of build, build a career that brings new perspectives to journalism. And you keep giving
1: me such wonderful segues. So my next question was really a question about what's commonly called citizen journalism. And I'm going to give you an example of how that can go awry. So what I find sometimes, particularly around this history here um, with regard to the massacre and Tulsa's Greenwood District more generally, is that I often run across hyperbolic information. I, I ran into a, a physician who fancied himself as an a, a African American historian, and he claimed that three thousand people were killed in the massacre. I corrected, I corrected him, and he said, "Well, that's what I heard."
0: Yeah, that 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 does happen and you know one of the things i've learned from this i mean as a as a reporter uh, for 20 years before i started working on this i already knew it but it made it me much more aware of the need to be careful about what you you put into print whether it's electronic print or or paper print because especially in this day and age once something's out there it's out there and what's even more uh fitting for this situation is that one of the things that sparked the massacre was uh, lo- loose reporting, if I can put it that way. And there was a lot of, of it, you know, afterwards. And so how do you deal with that? I don't know. All I know is I personally try to be very careful, and I but I understand that that there are a lot of people who want to, there's always a, want to gravitate towards the bigger numbers, or you know, or, or whatever it is, and I think that's unfortunate because it tends to detract from the overall message. In other words, if you have people over here fighting over whether 300 or 3,000 were killed, you sort of lose track of the main point, which was. This was a terrible disaster nobody no matter what. You know, we need to understand how this happened and why. And it's not that the number of people who were killed doesn't matter, it does matter, but it's not the most important thing, bigger picture. Obviously, it's the biggest thing if you were one of those people killed. I I or you know, their family members. I understand that. But I think in this and other things we have a tendency to let ourselves get distracted from the main message, if I can put it that way. I absolutely agree.
1: And and let me just get your comment on a little bit more of a nuanced version of the same question. And this is something that actually came up for me recently. So I think you and I agree that the official death count from the massacre is 37. It had been reported as 36, but there was an additional death certificate found. Most people who have studied these events, including the commission that studied from 1997 to 2001, issued its award running final report, believe that somewhere between 100 and 300 people were killed. Now, uh, part of the reason for the discrepancy, there are many, mass possibility of mass graves, poor record keeping, all that. But, uh, but but we also know that systemic racism was an issue back in, in 1921, and that Tulsa was on an upward trajectory to becoming the oil capital of the world. So the business leadership had an interest in in really minimizing what happened in 1921. So some folks who talk about the numbers of death will we'll say between 100 and 300 people were killed without, without a footnote that says, oh, by the way, the actual death count, according to officials at the, at the time and, and now is 37 based on the number of death certificates. But for these reasons, most experts believe the actual count to be much larger. So how important is it to add the, the, the contextual nuanced information
0: for me, as a reporter, it's really important. And whenever I, re, you know, mention the, the death count stuff, I almost always say there were 37 known deaths, uh, but the number is believed to be higher and perhaps much higher. You know, in the book, I said, we'll probably never know the, the true number killed because I, agree. Yeah. I, I, I don't think we will, even if the, the hunt for the, you know, the, the graves, find some that doesn't mean that's everybody and if they don't find any that doesn't mean they don't exist so and there's there's just all sorts of things we don't know
1: absolutely final question what lessons do do you think we could glean from this past in terms of reportage that could be helpful to media today who are covering what I consider to be some of the most tumultuous racial incidents, and including protests and uh, police on citizen engagement and so forth. What lessons from the past can we... F- use in the present that would be useful, helpful to all of us?
0: You know, I think one would be be careful, be careful of your facts and try and look for the real story. It's not just about numbers. It's about why people, what they think, why people feel what they feel and why they do what they do. You know, it's it's easy to be mad at people because they go out and, you know, march around or commit some destruction as we're seeing. But you need to understand what's going on there, because if you don't understand what's going on, you're not going to be able to stop it and you're not going to be able to uh, prevent it in the future.
1: Absolutely. Totally, totally agree with you. Well, thanks, Randy, for joining us on the Mental Health Download and look forward to chatting with you
0: again soon. All right. Thanks a lot.